Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. We are a podcast of post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we have an interview for you with Dr. Patrick Reyes, author of Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. This is a great interview, but before we get into that, we have a few announcements up top. First is don't forget next week is our Divine Cinema episode and we will be watching Christian Mingle the movie. Yes, they made a movie on Christian Mingle. Uh, if you're interested in that, it's on Netflix streaming. The information is in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 98. And the following week will be our 100th episode. We've been almost two years every single week bringing you episodes of Irenacast, and we want to do something special for our 100th episode. And what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be recording our episode live. So on Sunday, January 29th at 4 p.m., uh, we are going to be live broadcasting our recording session. So you can come, chat, talk. Uh, it'll be a little bit informal, fun. We're not exactly 100% sure what we're going to do yet, but we want to open it up to all of you who have been faithful listeners and new listeners as well. Uh, if you want information on that, you can go to irenacast.com slash live. We're playing with a couple platforms that we're going to broadcast from, so continue to follow us on our social media, or again, go to irenacast.com slash live, and we will update you there. We're really looking forward to, to episode 100. So with all that out of the way, without any further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Patrick B. Reyes. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Irenicast. I'm your host, Mona, and with me today is someone I'm very honored to have on the show, Dr. Patrick B. Reyes. Patrick, welcome to Irenicast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I just finished reading Patrick's book, which just came out in December. Is that right? Yes, it was launched at the beginning of December. Excellent. It's called Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. This book really moved me, and I found myself in tears at a number of occasions, and I'm looking forward to talking to Patrick about it more. Uh, this work is really autobiographical for you. Is that right, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I, I as a you know, theologian, I, I figured many of the texts I was reading didn't really connect to my life in the way that um, I felt compelled by my own faith and uh, my own community. So I need to tell those stories and tell stories in a different way um, that you know, relate life and faith. Um, especially as a Latino from California, yeah, I think our stories are almost always forgotten. So this book is really to shed some light on that. I can't wait to dig into this. And before we get started, I'd love to hear you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you're doing these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like you introduced, I'm Patrick. I'm, I'm currently in Atlanta. I work for the Forum for Theological Exploration. Uh, we are a leadership incubator that supports um, young people who have a discernment call to ministry, so primarily 18 to 30-year-olds. And um, also, um, in the work that I direct, which is our doctoral initiatives, um, it's uh, supporting scholars of color. Um, this has been kind of the historic backbone of uh, our organization since 1954. So we're carrying that work forward in grants and fellowships, convenings, um, just supporting the next generation of Christian leaders um, to do the work that they're truly called to. And I've been doing this for the last year. I've been in the director role for the doctoral initiatives. Um, prior to that, I was working at a small Christian liberal arts college as an assistant dean for academic affairs. 
Um, primarily at that school, I, I was called uh, um, to support scholars um, or students of color. Um, the school was about 60% students of color, um, and the faculty was almost all uh, white. I mean, I should say it was all white. I was only a voting faculty member of color. Um, only a, one of two Latino administrators. Um, so it was, a, you know, a big, a big job to do at a very small campus. And um, prior to that, I was, you know, out in Boston working at Northeastern. I was the program director for the Global Citizenship Project and also program manager for Spirituality Dialogue and um, Education Initiatives um, at Northeastern, working with faculty, administrators, and students around cultural competency and um, interfaith and faith competency um, to really raise awareness around the vast amount of resources we have in our wisdom and theological traditions and our faith traditions. Um, So that's what I've been up to since I've been hired. I did my doctorate at uh, Claremont. Um, School of Theology. I did a, a MDiv at BU School of Theology, and you know it comes out in the book. So I'll say it here. You know, I, I um, wasn't just you know in these kind of standalone theological schools. I got my start at a state college, uh, Cal State Sacramento. Um, you know, I think the average, uh, the total annual tuition when I was there was about three grand, um, and got a nice healthy scholarship to cover that. So compared to what, um, you know, most higher education institutions are charging, I, I thought I got a deal for that undergrad. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's great. I also should say that's my favorite. My favorite diploma is my undergraduate because at the time, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the uh, governor of California. So his signature is on my, on the uh, thing. The governator. <laughs> Not that I'm a governor fan, but I, and that uh, uh, some of his movies. So I was glad that he got to sign that. That's hilarious. Uh, and I'm from California too. Uh, we haven't talked oh, about awesome. this yet uh, directly, but I'm from Santa Maria, which is just a couple hours north of where you grew up in Salinas. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. Right off Highway 101. Right up the 101. Yep. Yep. Encountering theology is so interesting when you finally have your experience represented. And I grew up Pentecostal, and often in like the world of liberal land, I don't hear Pentecostalism represented hardly at all, which is interesting because globally it's such a huge percentage of Christians, uh, Christian populations. Um, so to hear someone talk about stuff that happened in my backyard, basically growing up in, in California, is really interesting. And I realized that I haven't heard many voices represented in this way. Um, so I, I was really. It was interesting reading your book because you describe that the 101 cut your town in half and you were either from the the white side or the person of color side. And I, w- I experienced that same ra- racist, uber racist dynamic in a half Latino community, Latinx community uh, from the white side and hearing people in my life who I really loved and respected saying really horrible uh, eugenicist, racist stuff and then going to my Mexican friend's houses and experience unbridled hospitality and love. So I, there was a huge disconnect for me growing up experiencing those two sides of the the very racist coin. And, and I think there's so much attention right now on racism between uh, black and white communities that often the white Latino uh, community racist dynamic doesn't often get talked about, at least in my circles. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that always comes up, when especially talking about Salinas, I think I had um, part of the uh, reason why I was able to write the book and the stories that I did is that I can, um, and I did, travel be- between the two communities. So, you know, I, I talk about um, having, you know, kind of my foot in both. And, you know, I've 
grew up on one side. Uh, the school that I went to, um, you know, we, have, you know, we'll probably talk about it later. But, but Christian Brothers um, High School that I went to um, was on the south side, which is you know the white side of the um, of the one hundred and one. And um, so I was able to see both daily on a really like kind of visceral um, level. Um, I also had, you know, um, you know, I was, my mom's white, my dad's Mexican. So, I mean, there's that kind of dynamic of seeing it happen out in in my family. You know, as I got older, when I was working in uh, the packing sheds um, of Salinas, I mean, it was almost, uh, you know, I saw the dichotomy kind of play out in who was working inside the packing sheds or, you know, in the fields and who were the supervisors or who were the people who were working inside the building. And again, I mean, I could move in and out. You know, my father was, he kind of charted a path. You know, he was the first in his family to get a degree. Uh, he went into computer information science, you know, to kind of, uh, to get out of the, you know, get out of the shed and, and move inside. And he did. So he kind of paved a, a path for me to do the things that I really wanted to, to do in life. And um, so I've been the beneficiary of both of incredible privilege and um and kind of the day-to-day grind of the latinx uh, community especially in Salinas. you have so many poignant images in your book one of them is uh i think you said you said you worked in the factory or the plant where you would pack the trays for veggie platters that people would buy for parties often wealthy people right because wealthy people have the money to buy pre-cut vegetables and the workers that you were working with in the fields often, I think the way you said it is the people providing the food, growing the food often went hungry and and how strange it was in such a land of plenty that that would be the case. Yeah. You know, it, it still kind of blows my mind because, you know, I still buy them. You know, the we can probably all imagine them. You know, you go to a party or dinner party and you see that nice big round with a dip in the middle and it's got the little cherry tomatoes and, and cuts of broccoli and um, carrot sticks. So we were... I was working the night shift filling those, um, those party platters up. And, you know, these, these, these party platters are way too expensive for people to, you know, buy, you know, on a daily basis or so it's, and, you know, I should also say I was horrible at doing that job. You know, I could, for some reason I could never just scoop enough cherry tomatoes and put them in the little thing. So I was always holding up the line. Um, eventually got moved to, you know, creating the crates and the boxes that shipped them because, <laughs> you know, they kicked me off the line. Um, but yeah, these, you know, that's the kind of, um, these are, you know, I think we're making about eight bucks an hour shift starts at nine at night. Um, you know, they work three, you know, every day except for Christmas. Um, and sometimes they might get, you know, a a Thanksgiving day off or, um, you know, an Easter holiday. Um, but for the most part it's year round work. Um, and these, and this is people just trying to, trying to make ends meet and, um, not really having a, a way out. I was just talking with my father about one of the uh, women who I worked with there started working in the packing shed when she was just a teenager. Um, and she would often talk uh, to me and the other uh, um, folks in the packing shed about how if you just work really hard, you could could make it, you could do something else. And um, she had advanced in 25 years, um, one or two up. Um, you know, she was a supervisor, a night supervisor, and that's not to say that she hasn't done incredible things. Um, that's just to say that the the advancement for folks who are uh, making eight bucks an hour working night shifts um, and the opportunities for them to go back and get an education in the day or do all these things that many of us can kind of take advantage of, um, those opportunities just aren't there for them because they really are working with such um, few resources. And um, so I was, you know, in this book trying to depict that, 
you know, that struggle isn't just people um, needing to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that this is a community that's well resourced in terms of community and help. And we all are, are looking out for one another, but there's just, it's, um, you know, the capital that we have to make it out of those conditions, unless you have real special breaks, which I'm very clear. I got a lot of in um, this book. Um, you, you know, the chances are that you'll, you'll be in the packing shed your whole life. One of the things I so appreciated about how you wrote this is that you wrote it as a chronicle of how many people called you to life. That's one of the major themes that you talk about in the book is calling to life and being called to life. Can you talk about that for our listeners? A lot of uh, folks who um, are thinking about what they want to do and who they want to be in the world um, start with this question of who am I or what's the work I want to do? Um, and for people from communities like mine, um, the first call is to just live. I mean, just to make ends meet, to simply eat and breathe and put table. And so I, um, went through and as a way of kind of honoring my ancestors and the community that was really around me, I named every single person, um, and communities that really called me to life. So I say, and the book opens up with, you know, some um, domestic violence issues that we're having in, in my home. And um, I talk about the Christian brothers who offered me a space um, to, to educate myself, to um, be a part of their faith community, um, to take advantage of all the extracurriculars they had in junior high and high school. Um, so I could be out of my home and at their, at this place of education and learning and, um, and just life. Um, so I talk about them. I talk about my grandma who, you know, a little bit later, I talk about the struggles of Selena. This is one of the high, you know, I think we're for 2016, it was the eighth highest, uh, I mean, um, eight times national average for homicide. And that's almost exclusively due to gang violence. Um, and this, you know, just, just this year, we're two homicides already since the beginning of 2017. And this is a small community. This is, you know, a hundred thousand people, um, you know, almost 10% are affected by the, um, you know, by the violence. So it's just really, my grandma did everything she could to kind of step in and support me um, and help me when I've witnessed violence or I was really down on life and didn't think um, that, you know, I I could make it to tomorrow. Um, I talk about mentors and education and um, students and um, family members and friends who, you know, at those moments when I, you know, was told I needed to quit or give up, told me that I had an opportunity to do something different. A good example was be when, you know, when I was going to grad school and seminary for the first time, I had discerned this call to ministry. I'd heard uh, one of the um, uh, Methodist minister who was, came in to do like little Bible studies with the folks who worked at, um, at the night shift had told me about uh, going out to be useful theology. So I go out to be useful theology. I'm in a class, one of the intro classes. And, you know, (laughs) one of the professors who just, I was hanging sheetrock at the time just to make ends meet so I could pay my tuition, pay my rent, all that. So I showed up covered in drywall dust and um, just smelling like BO because of the hard work. And uh, um, the we were in a test and I got called out. and The uh, professor said, you know, grad school is not for everyone. Um, and so I, you know, I, I said, like, at least let me finish this test. Let me try to prove to you that I belong here. I did everything I could to, to prove I belonged um, for that entire semester, and it just never really happened. You know, my grades were 
poor. I couldn't really keep up with the work, um, hanging the rock, hanging rock and making, you know, paying my rent. So I went home and worked in the sheds that next summer. And at the end of that summer, I, you know, my best friend, um, when I told him I was going to quit, I was just going to come home and just be with my community. He said, you know, basically told me off and said, you have an opportunity to do something. You're not going to, with everything else you've survived in your life, you're not going to go and let this professor who has so little power over you tell you that you don't belong or that you don't have something to give. So you're going to go back or, you know, he had a lot of choice words. I, you know, I think I swore a few times in the, in the book and that was one of them, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So, so it's just people call me to life left and right. And you described that as the voice of God in that moment, which was awesome. When I first started reading the the introduction of your book, because my Pentecostal roots is all about calling and God's voice. All of a sudden, I went to a very spiritualized place. And throughout the book, I was able to make a lot of correlations between the uber spiritualism of the ideas of the voice of God and uh, calling and how uh, liberals in academia uh, theorize the voice of God and calling. It's very similar sort of logic system to me in reading this. So I could really, I could really deeply relate in so many ways to what you're saying. And it took me a long time to calibrate my understanding of what those things meant to what you were trying to get across that God calls us first to life, like actual literal life, like in our bodies and in the dirt, Mm -hmm. and then calls us to call other people to the same thing. And and it's, it's such a simple but profound thing that often gets completely glossed over. You do a really good job in this book showing that it's glossed over often for people who haven't had to struggle. One of the things that um, often comes up, especially for people who are trying to take the, you know, lived experience away from, especially communities like mine, you know, communities that are forgotten or off the map, um, you know, that, that kind of call to, just live um it's something a lot of people take for granted that that's not something they have to think about whether or not they have a meal today tomorrow whether or not their street is going to get shot up um you know just that these are kind of things that people take for granted i think that call to life also for me and i you know you put it in perfect language there that you know i heard it as a call from god i mean i think it's not just you know biblical prophets who heard you know heard the voice of god calling them out in the wilderness. I mean, for me, it was also um, Christians, um, deeply uh, um, devotional, confessional Christians, like the Christian brothers in my hometown or my grandmother, who stepped in when I needed it most in my life. And um, they name, when they name the reasons why they do it, I mean, aside from just the sheer love for they had, had for me as a person, they also modeled a deep... Um, Christian life, um, prayer life, um, commitment to their local communities, um, educating young people. And I think that hearing that narrative and seeing that example set before me from, you know, really faithful people allowed me to to hear it as the, as the, um, as God calling me to life. Um, because it, you know, that's, that's the way, that's the way that, you know, that experience was named for me. And there's a really as a person of faith, I really can't think of any other way to name it. I really love that. And it's such a stark contrast from you talking about your the, the experience with the Christian brothers and your grandmother, who are just wonderful characters in the book. They're not characters, of course, they're real people, but the stories you tell are just <laughs> yeah. spectacular, really. Um, 
and especially the Christian brothers who provided a safe space for you when you're going through horrible things at home. It, it contrasted that to your seminary experience and that professor who shamed you and made you feel completely unwelcome and really snubbed the fact that you needed to work a normal manual job to support yourself through grad school that um I, you said something in there that just it, it just it moved me so deeply and it could, because I can see this happening I can see that that academic training and and postgraduate education and the, the theoretical quote unquote uh world of work probably in in a lot of senses any sort of white collar field you're poking holes in it and and you said that you you came to class covered in this dust of the sheetrock and the dust was white and it felt like a metaphor for you that you needed to fit into this very white space and that you were not you were not fitting and even like the, the mockery of trying to dress up like uh, like in in the guise of whiteness still wasn't good enough. I mean, it was just so perfect. It was perfect in the sense that the visual just really came across for me. That whole experience. I mean, I remember the first day I started my um, seminar. I showed up for the orientation, and it's me and and uh, one um, African American brother who who shows up, and we both show up in ties. And everyone, you know, it's summer in Boston. Everyone else is in flip-flops and shorts and short sleeve shirts and, you know, ready to just like, it was like they were going to church camp. <laughs> we were, you know, we were, we were trying to, you know, match what, you know, we laugh about it now, but trying to match what we thought we were walking into, which was this, you know, like exactly as you described it, this kind of white collar environment that, um, you know, tries to um, marginalize um, our experiences, especially for those who have deeply faithful narratives that are coming into these um, institutions seeking resources to go back and use the resources from that place in our home communities um it's you know it's almost comical that the way that the first year played out and i should say you know in the long run i didn't keep hanging shoe rock in the second and third year i couldn't do it i mean that in in some sense it was meant to, to shame me out of that um kind of mindset that you know i could kind of live in both worlds and um you know it both worked and it i think it was honestly probably accurate and true. You can't hang sheet rock. You can't work, you know, a 40 to 50 hour work week, um, you know, lifting these 50 to hundred pound boards, um, over your head all day and then expect to study for another eight hours and write papers and, um, you know, full time. You can't do both full time. It's just, it would, it would have, it would have killed me. What made you do it in the first place? When I moved out of California to, to go to seminary, my, um, I was really fortunate. I, you know, one of my best friends growing up, uh, we were living together in Sacramento. We both graduated from Sac State at the same time. And I was thinking about grad schools and looking at a variety of different schools. And um, we talked about, you know, a couple months prior to moving to Boston. And I had, um, we both decided that and uh, his girlfriend at the time said, well, why don't we try Boston? Like, you know, he came and pitched it to me and I'd already had my bags, bags packed and ticket punts for a different city and a different school. And, um, but we changed plans and went to Boston. Part of that change, uh, cost a lot of money and I had to sell all I had at the time were, you know, a few, um, you know, a couch, a chair, um, a bed and a motorcycle. That's why, you know, road in California wasn't, we didn't really have rain or snow. So I sold all that um, and needed to work, needed to put money in the, needed to pay rent. So that's what, I mean, it came out survivable, just not knowing that 
loans are an option or, you know, when they were put on the table that that's, you know, graduate education is excessively expensive. Um, even with financial and to even with tuition covered, it's still living in Boston is expensive. So, um, yeah, it was, it was out of survival and, and doing things that I knew how to do already. That makes total sense. And, um, the fact that your experience was so unlike almost, it sounds like any of your classmates that you felt, um, you say in the book that you felt very different, uh, in that world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, the, you know, the class, my classmates who are all incredible people. I mean, they're just, um, you know, some of the strongest friendships I ever made were in that first grad school experience. I mean, I met my wife, um, at grad school. So, I mean, the, the folks there, but, you know, I think, you know, contrast the experience with, um, I'll say with, with my wife, um, in particular, you know, she, uh, when she, she needed to work as well, she needed to make a little bit more money came for from more, a little more affluence than, um, than I did. Although she has, you know, her family, um, should be writing a book themselves. I mean, on both sides, just incredible, um, incredible stories of like living out the American dream in kind of a very, um, inspirational way. But, um, anyway, so when we're in Boston, she, she had to work. So she went and did what most, I what I imagine what most grad students do, which is that, you know, go and get a job and doing some sort of admin work in the field that they want to do. So she was working at the chapel for music because she was, you know, a trained vocalist. So she was singing in the choir and, um, you know, helping out with the dissemination of music and all that kind of stuff. And then got a job at the coffee shop, a uh, local coffee shop, because that's what, you know, grad students did um both things i would have never imagined doing you know church wasn't something you got paid for uh, back home and especially as a lay person as a lay catholic um and um working in a coffee shop wasn't a wasn't a thing that wasn't for us you know i had my kind of manual labor skills um and that's what i that's that's the race narrative um if you're you know race you put in hard hours um, you work harder than the next person, and that hard work isn't sweating over writing, uh, sweating over a, a you know a MacBook. Um, it's sweating, doing you know construction or working in the fields or you know social work and that sort of thing. So um, I was just yeah, it was it was a completely different experience, and um, I really didn't know where to. I didn't know how to be a proper grad student if there is such a thing. It is interesting how the kind of work you do has so much to do with your identity. And I, I experience this all the time. Um, and uh, it, just wondering what to do after seminary. I'm not pursuing doctoral work at the, now. So to go back to business, does that mean I'm a business person or a theologian? Can I be both? I don't know. <laughs> it, it's it's really kind of can mess with your head a little bit, um, especially if what you're describing in the book is a sort of double bind where to escape the violence of your community and to, and to go into education, you have this wonderful quote from Sandra Cisneros, who um, I was fortunate to read in high school through one of my English classes and was really um, impressed by her writing. And I'm glad that you draw on her in the book, th- that the page and education are sort of foreign to your community to such a degree that to pursue these things really means to b- break from your community and what a double bind that is. And that must be very difficult. Man, you you're hitting on something that's a little like hitting really close to home right now with the, with the book. I mean, that it is a double bind. It's, it's, a uh, uh, you know, it's pain on both sides. I mean, I, I talked about it in the book, you know, I just described, um, playing baseball in my community and, and the, 
you know, being on the Latino community, on the Latino team, you know, we, we can win it. I'd say we can win at baseball. Um, at the same time, you know, I was trying to make it this Christian brothers high school, trying to make good grades so I could get, get out. I mean, that's one of the things my grandma wanted me to do is get out of my community, um, trying to make changes in my community, but my home community and my, my family really value education. It is, it is a weird space to be in. Um, because once you are able to get out, you're no longer there. I just had a conversation with a really good friend um, who I acknowledge in the book um, who, you know, after reading it, reading sections of the book, um, really challenged me to think about what is my identity to my home community now um, that I've been gone for so long and that I'm doing my primarily my work is primarily in higher education and supporting scholars of color um, to do the work that they want to do or minister to to in their home communities but i'm not actually in my home community um and it's a it's a deeply challenging space to be in both for you know my home community um calling me out saying um and this is in the voice of my friend saying you're not here anymore at the same time saying we are so proud that you're doing the work that you're doing and we're telling everyone that you're you're out and that you're doing this and you're a model for you know people to come behind you so it is a real double bind um it's a it's a space that's not easily occupied I, I i lose a lot of sleep being in georgia when i'm a you know my family's been in california on one side for several hundred years so um it's a it it you know it wreaks havoc on my soul but you know when i'm thinking about what's happening in the world today um with you know with the politics with the global scene with uh, global immigration uh issues poverty, racial violence, racial tensions. Um, there's so much work to be done um, that you know, I, I really try to call as many people to do the work that they're called to do, regardless of where their location is. Um, and I say that only because I've talked with a few folks around this book who um, say, you know, tell me, Pat, you know, Patrick, I love that you're from a place and you feel really strongly about it and you have this deep connection to it. And, you know, what we're talking about, double bind that you feel both a guilt for leaving, but you're also really tied to it. You're trying to pull people out to do the work they're doing and support the people who are there, they're doing the work, but I don't have a home. Um, I don't know. I can't relate on that level. And, and what I call people to in this book is really just ground themselves in any place that they, that they find themselves and do the best they can um, in their local community or um, with the work that they're doing. And that, and that is distilled down to calling people to life. So uh, search out for life for yourself and for your local community, wherever you are. And that's um, what I think God is calling us, uh, calling us to do um, regardless of whether or not you're in your home community or not. That's awesome. And it's also a can of worms, right? Because especially yeah. for, especially as I'm reading this as a white person, uh, I'm thinking about, all, all manner of things, but um, I'll give two examples. First of all, a church in my hometown I know had like a, a ministry to the north side of town that was primarily Latinx, and they would go and put on a puppet show for the kids and then give out bags of groceries. Um, well, first of all, the families didn't understand anything that they were saying in this English puppet show. 
<laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot of like colonial implications for this, right? Like putting on a puppet show for like the poor people and and then handing out groceries, but not doing anything to alleviate systematic poverty uh, or really connect to these folks. You know, I, I wasn't there personally, so I don't know exactly how this ministry went, but I know that the church was incredibly proud of this ministry. And for them, it was very meaningful. But I could also see that there were some big gaps in there. This was the best they could do. And I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and, and these good intentions of people giving away food. But at the same time, it, it's just so it could be more, you know, um, but to what extent do churches have resources to extend and, and work on systemic problems? And the other example that comes to mind is um, of a, a mutual friend that you and I have that works with uh, kids from the projects and in a big urban center. And uh, she does a lot of youth organizing work. And as a thank you for her work and for the work of her students that did a lot of like uh, voter turnout kind of work, um, this wealthy community who had given them some money invited the kids out to celebrate. So they ended up going to one of the nicest neighborhoods in town and, and they were thrown a catered banquet. So these kids from the projects who barely had enough to eat at home, most of them were thrust into this incredibly affluent um, uh, event and and there was no relationship built. And so I, I love what you're saying about the call of God is to not only call ourselves to life, but to call others to life. And you have this beautiful, this beautiful quote, um, something, that, something to the extent is calling others to life is inviting them into the beauty of your life. But what does that mean if the beauty of your life is whiteness, is, is because you've been given so much? And there's no way to solve well, s- systematic differences. So I don't know. It can, do you think that can work for people of all races and, and social locations? Yes. The answer is yes. And I'll, you know, I'll stick with stories. So I, I talk about the Christian brothers. And I, never, I, you know, I realized that I didn't racialize the Christian brothers um, all that much in the, in the story. And it opens up with them. Um, and I, I realized this in a conversation with... Um, uh, my wife, my father-in-law who said, you know, his, you know, major concern was that I, I had a, um, you know, I just didn't think that white people could make a difference in communities of color, which is not the case because these Christian brothers are a perfect example of someone who are people who are white, um, folks, um, who are living out a Christian call to do service in the world for, for um, those who need it most, um, and offering education to young men, um, and they have, I mean, I would say that even at the Christian Brothers School, you know, they, they didn't take a whole lot from my side of town, you know, a whole lot of students. It's still a primarily, you know, white Christian Brothers educating white young men um, in the community because, you know, there's tuition involved and all that kind of stuff. But for the those that they do call out of um, the community and the young, um, poor, uh, black and brown students that they um, pull in and the ways that they intervene, by inviting people into, um, not like, I mean, I think what you're saying is this is, is spot on. It wasn't, I wasn't invited to, um, you know, their, their annual Thanksgiving cookout. I was invited, I was invited to join them every morning <laughs> for prayer. And, um, if I didn't mm-hmm. have a breakfast to have breakfast there, or if I, um, needed a place to, hide out to, um, to come and talk to, you know, mainly the, the principal to come and talk to him, to, um, use, use the opportunity 
which were all these extracurricular opportunities, you know, whether it's sports or, you know, arts, yearbook, band. I, did, I mean, I literally did it all at that school. Um, they said, do as much as you can, be here as much as possible, and we'll support you. Um, I think that's that's a profoundly different invitation than let's just come out and have one meal together. You know, that's, um, I think those, you know, one-off events are more about the people um, who, you know, kind of operating out white guilt um, than people who are operating out of, you know, Christian service. So, I mean, I think the answer is absolutely yes. There is a, you know, there's, a, as a theorist, you know, I always have that kind of colonial question, you know, how, how much is it in uh, goodwill and how much pain and, and colonial jargon is, can I put on these service opportunities, you know, where uh, white folks, white Christian folks go and um, serve, you know, black and brown communities in particular, whether it's in, you know, service trips to, you know, Tijuana or, you know, wherever you may be going or just, you know, down the town, down to the other side of town. Um, and at the end of the day, um, I would rather have people showing up on a regular basis um, because of their commitment to make the world a better place than um, shaming folks for um, not doing anything at all. Um, you know, I, I, I would rather, you know, the, the call the life from my side now, cause I have a little bit more power and can see the other side a little bit better is to just invite those folks who have been doing this offering service um, to enter into exactly what you're doing, deeper relationship with the people they're serving um, and just keep pushing them to do that. It's not an easy thing when you are surrounded in a kind of a monoculture. Um, so you have to, you know, that's, you know, that's your, my work to do, um, to start challenging our communities, um, who are doing service in the communities, like the ones I came from, uh, to do a better job of building those relationships. And I feel like your book really does demonstrate that it really does try to provide not just a critique, but an alternative, uh, how to get away from trauma tourism and what you call, uh, liberal, colonialism, which is interesting because liberals are usually the ones decrying colonialism, but oftentimes yeah. participating in it without knowing it. You know, I'm guilty. A lot of us are guilty of doing this, of course. And and so I, I really appreciate it that you try to go a positive, like a positive alternative. Um, I really love the saying, don't tear down my house, build me a better one. Show people a better way to do it instead of just tearing down what they're trying to do yeah. currently. Yeah. And sometimes I think I, I put in the in the story, you know, I mean, in the book, I mean, I kind of tell a story about my experience in higher education, especially when I first got there. And around that, you know, phrase, you know, uh, liberal colonialism or pious colonialism and um, trauma tourism that, you know, I had so many colleagues. I mean, Northeastern is a primary, I think it was like 70 something percent student body was white, affluent, you know, top R1 research institution, mostly STEM. Um, but they had great um you know, they did great global education. They have this co-op model where you're out in the community working full-time for six six months at a time. And I would just see these young people who were so bright, so brilliant, um, just stacking, um, and even my colleagues, um, the colleagues I worked with, stacking up their CVs with these lines about, you know, I made this travel, you know, this trip to Latin America, or I made this, you know, trip to the continent, or, um, you know, I went and served, this community in, you know, post Katrina, um, New Orleans, you know, even service trip that I went on. I mean, I would see these kind of CV lines line up and, you know, one of the things I, you know, I would say when I do my presentations or when we'd be working in meetings is, you know, I come from one of those communities that you're talking about, or I come from one of those communities that you just went and visited and you're, you know, I, 
I don't know. It just, it was so isolating to have, um, folks, uh, professionalize and, um, basically load up their professional credentials on the suffering of communities like mine. I mean, we, <clears throat> you don't get a CV line, you know, named, uh, surviving Salinas. Um, so, or, you know, resume line surviving, you know, X, Y, Z community in you know, the East Bay or in Chicago or, um, you know, New Orleans, New York, Baltimore, you don't get, you don't get these do You just do it. Our communities just make it out, um, and survive. So, I mean, that was one of the biggest challenges when I got there and, and it, it was really isolating. Um, wow. It, so it becomes a kind of currency. And I say in the book, I mean, I do say that the flip side was, I was having one of those moments where someone came back from a service, uh, international service trip, uh, was one of my colleagues was just kind of saying how they're changing the world. And this was like the 15th country they'd been to. And, you know, they, they're international peacekeeper and just all this nothingness, no commit commitments to any of those communities, um, just really kind of loading it up. So they look good. And, um, I was so frustrated. I was so, uh, mad and angry about, um, that this was something that, that they weren't even incurring those costs. They were having the institution pay for them to go and do these trips. So, you know, it came at zero cost to them, zero sacrifice to them. So I was so angry. I went home. And when I went home, I was, you know, also trying to finish up my doctorate. And I, you know, my research was really around the spiritual and religious lives of folks in my home communities where, you know, I went back into the fields and uh, worked alongside folks or went to community centers and talked to them about, you know, what sustained them in these really hard uh, lives. And I was at a, um, one of um, uh, young families um, home who had a couple kids who were, you know, asking me to tell their kids about how great it is to make it out and all sort of stuff. And, you know, that, um, so I'm, you know, telling them that it, you know, it is great to go get an education. It is great to get out of, um, out of this community. Um, we put them to bed and, um, you know, there's, there's a drive-by shooting later that night, um, doesn't hit their house. You know, it's not anywhere near really where they are. It's a couple buildings down, but it's still something that these kids were growing up with. And I, I couldn't, you know, as miserable as I was sitting in my little office in New England with no um, sunshine because, you know, it was winter and the snow had rolled in. Um, I just couldn't, I can't, I can't imagine, um, you know, raising, you know, raising my own son in the, in the, that environment um, and, and trying to prepare him to get out. Um, and at the same time, being honest that once you get out, it's going to be a world that you don't know how to survive in. Um, it's a, it's a, I mean, you call it, named it perfectly earlier. It's a double bind, um, that we live in. I'm so sad to hear it. I mean, I, I wish there was something, I, I wish there was an end in sight, you know, with all of the conversations around race and, and how divided the country is right now. And, and the re-rise of white supremacy is just, it's horrifying to think that, white folks like myself benefit from the system. People of color are killed actively from these systems. And, uh, it, it, how do you hang on to hope in these moments? That's such a good question. So I was, uh, invited to just today, I was invited to write a letter to the incoming, um, administration, um, to kind of name what, you know, needs are coming out of faith communities and specifically communities of color. And, um, to kind of detail what those, what those concerns might be. And it is hard to be 
hopeful. I mean, I, the thing that gives me hope is that um, one that there there is a community that calls us to life. So that's you know part and parcel with the book for people who are as fortunate as me to be surrounded by just humans who just wanted me to thrive. I mean, more than anything, who had done like my grandma's a great example who was you know surviving. Uh, domestic assault at home growing up raising six kids and um in a little one and a half bedroom home um you know with you know next to no education with a you know a, a drunk husband a drunk abusive husband um so i mean just doing so much on so little um and then calling this next generation to life and surrounding me with love and support you know because i had her i was able to do some other things and that that gives me hope that there's communities there are people out there who are doing incredible work to call this next generation to life to really um, surround the future leaders of this country with um, love and affirmation and the resources you know access to resources um, to get them where they need to be um, and it's that gives me uh, tons of hope you know it's you know we kind of uh, joked um with some of i shouldn't say joke i got pretty mad to to begin with after the uh, recent election that's not to say you know i was mad at the election results um like it was a surprise i was more angry that people were upset for in my in my circles for different reasons you know there was you know there were those who um couldn't believe that this was that this was happening that the world was unfair that you know how how did this how did this kind of racist um system play out in such a you know fantastic way um not just at the presidential election you know that's its own thing but like in local elections across the country in the you know congress and the senate and um where is this money coming from and you know i you know part of the things that give me hope is i was sitting there thinking like i don't know why y'all are so upset like you know communities of color um, and I'll speak specifically from the Latino community, especially for Latino communities, both from my experience with the Chicano community that was already in California before it was the United States. So this community that had everything taken from them and continues to have to carry that, that colonial, you know, baggage forward into, you know, it's a, it's a trauma that continues to haunt us. For those that are in the Latino community that had to immigrate from Mexico, like my grandfather, um, and kind of set up... Uh, try to survive in the system that was not made for them that didn't want that invited them through the uh, Brasetto program which is you know a farm worker program in the 1940s to get them here to do the work that they want to do but then try to get them back when you know the work was done um you know we've been surviving for a long time in this you know very dominating system um so i mean what gives me hope is that there's been this is not the first time for communities of color um and that there's a there is generational knowledge, wisdom, um, love, and caring from our ancestors um, as a person of faith from God that uh, we will make it uh, in. Uh, we will make it to the next generation, and when we do, that you know, if, if we're doing, if we're being faithful to God and to our community, that our the next generation, my kids will have will have it better than I did, um, and that gives me a lot of hope um, that you know that work is is necessary. And it's so clear from everything that you're saying that that's 
it has to be grounded in relationship. Like there's actually literally no other way to do it than to ground it in community and ground it in relationship. And I say the word ground because you spend a lot of time talking about grounding, which I, I found really awesome. And I encourage you to read the book because it's it's almost impossible to, <laughs> I think, explain all of what you're doing um, in this short period of time. Um, but I, I really appreciated um, the the challenge that you gave to those of us who find it really hard to comprehend community who who are used to this dog eat dog individualism and and take for granted all of the love and support and safety that we've been given um i really the the quote you had from carmen ninko fernandez that we are not your diversity we are the church um that really just that really hit home for me that really hit home for me it, it perfectly summed up this um this thinking that I think so many of us fall into that um, really objectifies the quote unquote other and and, and replaces the, the resume line, you know, the 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 currency of do gooderness or however it makes you feel. It replaces all of that. Um, it, it covers up relationship with all of that other crap, for lack of a better word, um, that we forget the the Christian love of neighbor as being more important than the love of self, or even as equal as the love of self. The central tenets of Christianity are often completely missed when we when we stop treating people like they matter and we stop treating people like they are our neighbors. And it sounds like a really simple message, but I appreciated that you you brought this to life in a new way for me. I don't know how to quite explain it, but I, I appreciate that. I mean, I try to make it as accessible as possible. I mean, I was thinking about you know, I, I talk a lot about being from a community of color, um, you know, being a Latinx in California or Chicano in, in California with this kind of history. And, um, you know, I think, you know, when I talk about God calling us to life and the conditions in which I found myself most um, at, at ease with, with God and the divine and where, um, where God could really speak. And I, I talk about my grandma's kitchen. And my grandma's kitchen, I think, um, is symbolic of you know kitchens across america not just the latinx community but you know white communities um immigrant communities um black and brown communities i mean like every every um house in america has i think a what i call a noisy kitchen so you know i i talk about um let me see if i can find that that quote so you know in 112 page 112 i described this communal discernment it says it was loud, noisy, filled with family and community members, and food was always involved. Everyone was in your business. Everyone had a thought or question, and someone else always had an answer to try out. This was a space of communal discernment, though I admit that to an outsider, it might not look like that. This was a place of life. I mean, that's not, that's, that's not a quote that's you know, specific to the Latinx community in California. I feel like that is that call to life where you're surrounded by family and friends, where there's disagreements, where there's, um, you know, people are, you know, I, you know, I made fun of, um, you know, being a, you know, short five foot eight. I like play basketball. That was kind of my pastime when I was younger and, you know, throwing something out there like, Oh, I'm going to join the NBA and having every single aunt and uncle have something to say about that, you know, put, it was a, it was its own sort of, call the life or, you know, call that you should probably do something else. Um, and I think those are conversations that are happening all the time, regardless of your context. Um, and so just, just embracing those moments as those are the moments when we are calling ourselves to life. And those aren't, 
that to invite people to our kitchens, to invite people to our tables, to have those conversations. Um, you know, these, these differences that we've been talking about, race, class, ethnicity, um, I think that that invitation can, you know, extend beyond all of those categories. Um, you know, my, my grandma's table was not reserved for just races. It was anyone that was walking in on Haley Street in Bakersfield. Yeah, it's that, it's that warm center of light. It's really sacred, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's something to be said for being pursued by your community that's really uh, changes you, you know? Gives yeah. you a sense of, of belonging and purpose. I mean, we all have our ways of um, having those conversations. You know, I talk, I try to be funny in the book. I think it was the place where I was least successful in the book. I was talking about my experience with my in-laws who, uh, you know, my father-in-law was, you know, he's a retired two-star um, admiral from the Navy. He was, um, just did incredible work and service. You know, her, my uh, mother-in-law received the second highest award you can get as a civilian for her service to the country. So, um, I mean, just an incredible family. But when they sit around the kitchen table, they're really small family they you know i i have you know 20 something cousins just on you know the Reyes side uh, we're loud you know everything's always happening they have two cousins they never you know they're on opposite side of the country so it's just my wife and her two siblings <laughs> and the first time i had uh, a meal with them um it's it was like being on a um you know like almost like on a television show each person talks <laughs> You know, they t- take turns. There's no talking over. Um, you don't make fun of anyone at the table, which was new to me, uh, which I'm still sort of <laughs> learning how not to like, you know, catch my tongue when I do that stuff. But they're still asking those questions, you know, over a shared meal. I remember when uh, when we were announcing that our son was coming into the world to them, you know, it was shared excitement around the table. And then just because of the way that they converse, you know, my family just started telling me everything I need to know about being a parent. They asked, they asked very direct and, you know, kind of introspective questions like, you know, in a very um, monotone way, or, are you prepared to be a parent? And, you know, like, you know, my family wasn't asking me that. You know, they asked me, are you ready to be dad? You know, um, you don't have anything. You don't have any experience. You don't like holding kids. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, it was just a very different experience. But the conversations in which um, that are being held around both tables are still around, you know, supporting us, um, in our, you know, in that instance and being good parents and, um, in a larger, you know, kind of more meta way of talking about, you know, being good people and, uh, you know, calling us to life. I love it. I, I love this book. And I would say it, for those of you who are not academic, this book is very accessible. If you want a good book for theology that'll get you thinking, but it doesn't have a ton of ginormous words that you have to use a dictionary to use. I mean, Patrick's work is is very theoretically sound, of course, and he has a great reading list. If you are interested in um, bibliographies, his is awesome. Um, but if, you, if you'd like a book that's accessible and you can just read like a normal human, then this is a great book. And I totally <laughs> recommend it. And I know, I know, Patrick, I, I think, and I, I think you said that you, you have written it that way on purpose and you have a really interesting exposition on theory versus story and why those two are at odds unnecessarily. And I really like that. Uh, but I appreciate that you told so many stories in this book. I just have so many wonderful mental things that I can latch into emotionally to make your ideas come to life. And it's, I thank you for that as a reader. Oh, thank you. Stories, is you know, that's the way that I feel like we converse in our daily lives. And, um, you know, I think that was also, um, one of the things that was missing, um, from my formal theological training, 
and that's not, you know, like you said, it's not, there's not theoretically sound or there's not theory or theology in the book, but it's to say that the experience and the lives, the ways in which we read texts, I mean, I say in there that my community taught me not just to read text, but to read context. So the way that we tell our stories is important. And also to recognize that in higher education, specifically in those who are being trained for ministry, people are being taught stories and people are being um, taught narratives. And for me, um, as a Latinx, those narratives and those stories were not from my community. They were not my own stories. I had a really hard time connecting my stories to the stories of, you know, German thinkers at the turn of the century, um, you know, turn of the 20th century. I mean, it's just those, those experiences and those narratives didn't connect to mine. Those theories, those words, those jargons, they didn't connect to me. So I needed to tell stories that, um, as a person of faith, that I could connect to, and that my community could connect to, and that everyone who wants to live a faithful life um, and to see when they're struggling um, on a day-to-day level, um, whether that's you know addiction or with the job or vocation or life, they have a text that they can turn to and see um, that, that they can be called the life, you know, by God. And they don't need to learn, you know, 12 different languages um, to figure that out, that there's some resources, rich resources that are accessible in their own story. Thank you so much for this work. It's, it's refreshing, really. And it's challenging, which is a rare combination. So I really, I thank you for your work. I thank you for your heart and, uh, and your stories and for being on the show, most of all. Yeah, Mono, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you everyone for tuning in to this week of Ironicast. This is Mona signing out. Have a wonderful day. 